This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. Yes, something just doesn't feel right about it, but we can only speculate at this time. And to a large extent, I, I want to believe that with good cause. That was Sunday Betrus, president of Zumanto Association USA, on the various problems Nigeria's election commission, INEC, is facing. Details coming up. Also, in Burundi, 24 people have been charged in a crackdown on homosexuality. And Sudan's teachers continue a strike that began in November over low and unpaid salaries. These stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story, Nigeria's Independent National Electoral Commission, or INEC, has postponed Saturday's governorship and state assembly elections for a week due to delays in preparing the voting machines. Our reporter in Abuja has more. In a statement yesterday, the commission cited its inability to promptly start reconfiguring the bimodal voter accreditation system or BIVAS machines utilized during the February 25th presidential election to enable their use in the state elections. Political analyst Frank Tete, a human rights and development lawyer, said INEC made the best decision to postpone the voting. INEC has faced severe criticisms in the wake of the just-concluded presidential election because it failed to use the much-talked-about BIVAS technology to upload the results. INEC knows that it can no longer give any excuse for any perceived failure on its part if it is not well prepared for the gubernatorial elections. INEC was earlier restrained from changing information embedded in the Beavers machines pending inspections and the issuance of certified true copies, or CTC, to candidates challenging the outcome of the February 25th presidential election. Tete said the postponement could give the electoral body the opportunity to redeem itself. In the minds of many Nigerians, I can say there is a lot of doubt that INEC will perform as according to expectation. The reason is, the INEC chairman in the past boasted severally that INEC would rely heavily on technology to ensure that the 2023 elections were regarded to be the most credible elections in the history of Nigeria. After the presidential elections of February 25th, Nigerians now think otherwise. But for the latest postponement, the 2023 general elections would have gone down in history as the first to be held as scheduled since 2015. In 2015, INEC postponed the elections by six weeks when the security agencies said they were embarking on a six-week special operation against Boko Haram insurgents in the northeast and would not be available for the balloting. In 2019, logistics and operational problems led to postponements of the election just hours before it was scheduled to begin. For VOA News from Abuja, Nigeria. With the outcome of the February 25th presidential elections leading to court challenges and outrage within the opposition and the public, governor and state assembly elections planned for Saturday are, as reported, have been delayed a week. 
All eyes are now focused on INEC, Nigeria's Electoral Commission. For more insight on the matter, I talked to Sande Bitrus, president of Zumantu Association USA, an organization dedicated to conflict resolution, public engagement and community participation. I think there has been a huge blowback with regard to the, the, the issues that, are, that arose from the use of the, the technology that was developed in-house by INEC during the presidential election. Um, again, being a technology that was developed in-house, you can be rest assured that there, it, will, it will still be in a process of uh, continuous improvement. So I'm not surprised that they are saying that they needed to reconfigure their, the machines that they were using for the elections. Again, we know that those were what, with, what was used during the last elections, part of what I was able to see in the registration portal where some of those results are supposed to come in includes illegible results sheets that are coming in. Um, the question of whether they, there are, they are the issue, whether it's a network issue, uh, again, remains unresolved. So they are saying they want to go ahead and reconfigure the equipment uh, so they can have uh, proper results, which in other words means that they are acknowledging that there are issues with the machines during the presidential elections which may have uh, affected or not the, the, the results. But then it remains to be seen. So I think it's also within their, their right uh, because INEC is, uh, was established to work as um, an agency in, in Nigeria that has the powers to develop its own guidelines. So if they feel that they cannot do it, they, they are, I believe that that's what they're, they're trying to do. But the PDP, the party of uh, Atiku Abu Bakar and Labour's Peter Obi, have seized on what has become a chaotic count after the failures with the digital voting system. Yes, so something just doesn't feel right about it. But we can only speculate at this time. And to a large extent, I, I want to believe that with good cause, and I want to have faith in the system, even though it has not displayed faith to the Nigerian people. Those are the, the I mean, the, the BVAS equipment that they have uh, u- utilized. Again, those are questions that still remains unanswered, and we're hoping that uh, through litigation and through the employment of experts who might be able to prove otherwise or not, uh, whether something indeed happened but people have their own assumptions and calculations. Again, I, I do not want to be a jury and a judge about uh, what's going on with the Beavers machine because I do not have a hard facts. What we have is speculations from different people, contestation from the parties. But I've always been, and we've always been advocates that there are mechanisms for pursuing the address or the redress of any issues that may have arisen from the use of the of the Beavers equipment. It remains to be seen. So moving forward, uh, as far as the election is concerned, uh, we have uh, court cases pending. What do you see will the outcome be as you look forward? This this becomes a question of if the judiciary is going to be impartial. We expect the judiciary should to be impartial in terms of determining the uh, whatever cases might have been brought uh, to to them to a judge, and of course the question of the evidence that might eventually be brought forward to argue the case. Um, we've seen around uh, social media a lot of uh, the list of the senior advocates of Nigeria being employed by all the presidential candidates and in, in at various stages to be the ones to defend or probably argue their case in, in the electoral court. So those remain certainly questions that we are looking forward to seeing how. It will play out. But to a large extent, a lot of Nigerians in the diaspora um, and around the world 
uh, and in Nigeria in particular, are really looking forward to a court case that would be interesting indeed to follow. Has there been any uh, reversal of uh, elections uh, in the history of Nigeria? Yes, there has been some cases in states. Um, there has been cases in states where elections were reversed and state governors were reappointed. But at the national level, I do not think that we do have any precedent. Uh, probably Nigeria might want to borrow relief from what they see going on around the world. But again, it's a question of merit, right? At the end of the day, if it has been proven that that is the case, that might eventually be applicable. But otherwise, right now, we know it can happen in the state. But at the federal level, it's a question that is still... Uh, I will call it unprotected waters. That was Sunday Betrus, president of Zumanta Association USA. He talked to me from the U.S. state of Virginia. The Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, uh, the TPLF, signed a peace accord in November to stop a two-year war. The deal's been holding, but analysts say it's marred by gaps that could prevent lasting peace. Darren Taylor reports. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed sent troops into Tigray in late 2020 after accusing the TPLF of attacking a federal army base. The TPLF had accused Abiy's government of persecuting the Tigrayan people. Human rights groups say all involved in the war that followed committed atrocities, including Eritrean forces on Abiy's side. The conflict killed about 600,000 people and displaced more than 4 million, and resulted in about 20 million people becoming reliant on emergency aid, according to the United Nations. A team of African Union mediators, led by former Nigerian President Olusegun Obasanjo eventually helped secure a peace deal in early November. It has allowed for disengaging from all forms of military confrontation. Ever since signing of the agreement in Pretoria, at least we haven't had serious confrontation like we had had in the previous times. Dismas Nkunda leads Atrocities Watch Africa, which monitors conflict around the continent. He says he's worried the peace deal refers only to the disarmament of the TPLF. If you read it, you can think it's an instruction that is being given only to TPLF, but there are so many other fighting groups that are there within the region. It does not mention the presence of Eritrean forces in the region. It was part of the whole system in terms of attacks on civilians. Nkunda says this is a great flaw that could result in the truce collapsing. The agreement also does not address the questions of territorial disputes between the different parts of the country. It does not have a clear sense of accountability for individuals who have committed various crimes uh, during the two-year conflict. If no one faces justice for human rights atrocities, says Nkunda, they'll happen again. Shuvai Nyoni, director of the African Leadership Center, points out that women in particular were victims yet appear to have been excluded from the peace process. There were no women in any of the parties to the peace agreement. To have no women is actually a sign of weakness of a process. And I think for me that is one of the greatest indictments. Of course, the process has not been participatory enough and inclusive enough. That is one of the most glaring gaps, that of the exclusion of important segments of society, in this case, particularly women. 
The agreement says African experts will monitor its implementation. Nyoni says this is too vague. It's an opportunity for us to actually demonstrate what is meant by the term African solutions for African problems. And for me, one of the biggest gaps is that the agreement does not do that enough. It does not take the opportunity to showcase why this moment, this peace agreement, is an opportunity to bring to the fore African solutions to African problems. Nyoni says the AU has a history of responding to crises and conflicts on the continent, yet has been remarkably silent about the implementation of the peace deal. She thinks she knows why. What carrots, what sticks, what mechanisms does the African Union have to ensure that this is implemented? It's not fully spelled out in the agreement. There's a lot of uh, talk about the, just the limitation of resources and capacity within the African Union itself to support such a process. Both analysts say other tensions are simmering in and around Tigray, which could spill into conflict at any time and threaten the peace accord. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Sudan's state school teachers have been on strike since November over low and unpaid salaries. They accuse the military government of failing to prioritize education and are calling for the civilian government to be restored. Meanwhile, Sudan's finance minister says the government has met the teachers' demands. Henry Wilkins reports from Khartoum, Sudan. Schools empty of their students are a common sight across Sudan. Since November, teachers have conducted multiple strikes, protesting wages that in some cases have not been paid in months, and which many teachers say are too low. Karmis Mamor Chatmi is the principal of this school in Khartoum. He says he worries about his students' education while the strikes continue. He says the problem will destroy several generations and the whole community itself. The problem is not only related to the teachers of Sudan, he says, but the whole community. His students, like Amir Mohammed Abdallah, are worried about their education too. He says private schools continue their lessons and are still teaching, whereas we study in state-run schools and lessons are suspended. This is really harmful since we are supposed to be given equal chances, Abdallah says. It will be very competitive and creates a huge gap between us. Since a military government headed by Abdel Fattah al-Bahan took power by way of a coup in October 2021, pro-democracy protests have rocked Khartoum on a regular basis. Civil servants have also struck over unpaid wages. Khartoum locals and even some government officials have told VOA there is a sense that the state is not functioning. The teacher strike could be just the tip of the iceberg. Gamaria Omar Ahmed Hussein is the vice chair of the Sudanese Teachers Committee, which has organised the strikes. She says the situation would have been resolved under the previous civilian government. Because we had a civil government that cares about education, she says, unlike this government established by the coup. And it's clear, Hussein says, that after the coup, education and other fields have been affected. Education is not their priority at all, based on what Jibril said in his speech. He thinks that education and teachers are not productive. 
Gibril Ibrahim is Sudan's finance minister who has been negotiating with the teachers on behalf of the government. Speaking with VOA, he insisted the government has addressed teachers' concerns, which he alleged are being manipulated. Now I've increased actually the budget, the budget for education at close to 18% now. And part of the whole thing is politicization of uh, the teachers' demands. Actually, uh, they, they, their demands have been met, but am I using these demands for their political uh, agenda? Yet the strikes continue. Although wages appear to have been paid to instructors in Khartoum, they have not been paid in other parts of the country, according to teachers. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Khartoum, Sudan. <laughs> UNICEF says malnutrition among mothers and adolescent girls has soared by 25% over the last three years in a dozen countries, and most of them are in Africa. Christiane Rudert, nutrition advisor for UNICEF's Eastern and Southern Africa Regional Office, tells VOA's Carol Van Dam she saw alarmingly thin women in Ethiopia, Somalia, and South Sudan due to conflicts, drought, flooding, and climate change, among other factors. So it's climate, the droughts are more frequent and more severe and longer. And, and the people in those, in those regions, in the Horn of Africa, the arid regions, never really recover fully from the previous drought cycle. So they're already vulnerable. Um, and then that, this latest crisis comes on top. South Sudan has a, a, a sort of large combination of different factors. There's um, chronic flooding, some parts of South Sudan, where I was actually last week, are permanently underwater and people are wading through the water to go about their daily lives. We've seen video of that. It's crazy. And these people have no choice but to just up and move because otherwise they would be living in submerged conditions all the time. And so there's lots of displacement and that always makes people very vulnerable. In South Sudan, there's also you know, sporadic conflict and, 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 you know, insecurity that also affects people. People don't grow food when they don't know if they're going to be attacked or, you know, have to move. And I've seen in, in Ethiopia, northern Ethiopia, some of the women that I've seen, I've met, you know, on my, my travels, um, it's just so striking when people are visibly thin, so thin. And, you know, we've had staggering rates of of the acute malnutrition in the screening of pregnant and breastfeeding women that we do, um, like up to 70, 80 percent are, are acutely malnourished and their children, of course, as well. But it's it's very striking and very concerning to see women, you know, malnourished at that level. And these are women that come from these countries like South Sudan, where the soil is usually fertile and rich. And if they don't have droughts or flooding like there is in South Sudan and parts of South Sudan or deadly conflict, they're okay. They can feed themselves, right? They can. I mean, the drought and parts of the the region are, are, you know, chronically affected by drought and crops and also pasture for livestock on which a lot of people depend gets more and more fragile. Other parts of, of the you know, whole greater Horn of Africa are indeed quite fertile, but the parts of South Sudan where crops are grown and you know, the parts of Ethiopia where crops are grown, even Kenya, we have very high rates of, of malnutrition also in northern Kenya. Because Kenya is like two different countries with the northern arid part of the country more and more like 
other parts of the horn, like Somalia. So food doesn't move around very efficiently, and people are also chronically very impoverished, and that's one of the key factors that we highlight in the report, that you know women are, are also disproportionately affected by food insecurity. The most disadvantaged households and populations the women in those populations are also much more likely to be acutely malnourished. And these women are supposed to be taking care of their families. And if they're malnutritioned, how are they going to take care of their families? And often they'll prioritize taking care of their families first. So they'll feed the children and then there's very little left for themselves. They often are supposed to feed the men first. So when I was talking to families in South Sudan last week, everyone says, oh, the men eat the meat, they eat the more nutritious foods, the children eat the scraps of what of that what's left. And no one even mentioned the women eating. So women are eating last, they're eating less nutritious foods. That was Christiane Rudert, a nutrition advisor for UNICEF's Eastern and Southern Africa Regional Office, speaking with VOA's Carol Van Dam. Basketball is one of the fastest-growing sports in South Africa, with junior leagues exploding thanks in part to the Basketball Africa League Ball, the joint effort between the National Basketball Association, NBA, and the International Basketball Federation, FIBA, has young players excited for ball season three, which tips off this Saturday. Zahir Kasim reports from Soweto, South Africa. The feeling inside the arena is electric. Local side Soweto Academy is taking on a junior NBA team from Royal Bafokeng. It's about bragging rights to see who the best ballers in the country are. And no one is holding back. Ten years ago, there were three clubs in Soweto. Today, there are more than 30 clubs for boys and girls. Coach Monwabisi Dlamini, co-founder of the Soweto Basketball Academy, says a lot of growth can be attributed to Basketball Africa League. Ball is like NBA in Africa. These kids are really like are, are crazy about it. They're crazy about the fact that they're actually seeing NBA type of basketball right here in home. So, I mean, when we had our the, the, the qualifiers, when we our kids went to go watch the, the Tigers, that was an, an amazing experience because you were seeing actually the very best of the best in Africa and some international players playing there. And it's really helped grow basketball because now, like I'm saying, when kids are seeing this up close, this is something to behold. So it's an amazing experience. The success of the BAL has been built on the foundation of work done by the NBA and other basketball organizations over the years, explains BAL Vice President John Manuel Planch. He says the BAL is now the pinnacle of basketball on the continent. The way we think about it is... There is the entire basketball ecosystem, the development work, the junior MBA programs, basketball without borders, et cetera. But then sitting atop that is this, you know, glitz and glamour of what the BAL represents, showcasing African talent globally. Since its inception, the Soweto Academy has made sure that the club trained boys and girls. 13-year-old Bokangle Fakane says she looks up to players like WNBA star Candace Parker and says her future, like Parker's, is destined for the courts. I play basketball because it's the first sport whereby I felt connected to it and literally I first loved. Nowadays we're finding a lot more girls playing and literally striving for the same for the same achievement that we also want to strive for. Voice of America is a broadcasting partner of the African League, which kicks off its new season on March 11th. 
Point guard and captain of the Soweto Raptors, Nantlantla Lukapo, says he wishes there was a BAL team in Johannesburg. But for now, he's happy to support the only South African club in the league. But I know my favourite team is based in uh, Cape Town, Cape Town Tigers. I follow it, everything about them. I love how they move. I love the ball, the ball movement, the hustle, the determination, the consistency that they put every time that they go inside the court. Outside, the boys continue to practice their dunks. They might not be slamming it into the net yet, but just like the sport, they will continue to grow. Zay Kassam for VOA News, Soweto, South Africa. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Adrius Rigas, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.